Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. Through a series of interviews, we will learn about how to create a compounder, a sustainable company whose success builds upon itself by hearing about the real life experiences of public company leaders. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview public company senior executives by posing the exact kind of questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. By talking to people who operate within a wide variety of industries, we will dig into the holistic aspects of company building that you are not gonna hear anywhere else. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Weston Hicks, the CEO of Allegheny Corporation, a $9.3 billion market cap company that focuses primarily on the insurance and reinsurance industry. Weston became CEO all the way back in late 2004, and since then, the company has grown its book value significantly and, like a mini Berkshire Hathaway, has built up an interesting portfolio of non-insurance businesses that includes everything from a machine tool company to a toy company. Weston was a key driver of the company's 2011 transformational merger with TransRe, a deal that established Allegheny as a global insurance powerhouse and has helped make it a Fortune 500 company. After close to 20 years with the company, Weston will be retiring at the end of this year. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to Weston before he officially leaves the CEO seat and get his insights and perspectives on a variety of topics, including his thoughts on what makes a compounder, the benefits and the setbacks associated with a trans-re merger, how to compensate people and establish a competitive advantage within the insurance industry, and the emergence of ESG and how that impacts a company that underwrites catastrophe risks. Sometimes when executives are on their way out, they're willing to be extra candid regarding their thoughts on their industry and on the world at large. This discussion will be no different. I think this is a great conversation for anyone who is interested in capital allocation, how CEOs help create an enduring culture, and what it takes to build a compounder in a very competitive industry. Before we start, just a few disclosures to note. First, Cove Street owns Allegheny stock. Second, Allegheny was formerly an investor in one of Cove Street's strategies. Third, Weston is a longtime friend of Cove Street's founder, Jeff Bronchick. And most importantly, all of the music was created and composed by our own Jeff Bronchick. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Allegheny Corp CEO, Weston Hicks. I'd like to start the podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. So let's jump right in and set the stage. It's early 2011, and you've been CEO of Allegheny, a company focused on providing specialty property and casualty insurance since 2004. The world is finally thawing from the financial crisis. The stock was around 300, 
and book value was around 340 per share. So you're contemplating the merger with Transre. I know it was 10 years ago, but I want to go back to that moment and talk a little bit about what you were thinking. So why, why was this the right time to engage in meaningful consolidation in your mind? Well, Ben, we, uh, we had been enjoying a number of years of uh, strong underwriting results from our primary insurance company, which is a company called RSUI Group, which we'd acquired in 2003. And um, we had started to generate some excess capital. Uh, because Allegheny doesn't pay a, a dividend, we consider ourselves really a capital manager. Uh, we've we found ourselves by uh, that point in time with about 1.2 billion of corporate capital uh, undeployed, and uh, I think we had a market capitalization back then of a, I don't know three three and a half billion or something like that. And so you know we we knew we wanted to have a more uh, a more a broader a more diversified base of operations besides one big specialty company. Um, but it wasn't obvious what other segments of the industry we we ought to be in. Uh, we knew that you know some of the seg segments of the property casualty business were already well served by some very formidable competitors. You know, large standard commercial insurers such as Travelers or or Chubb. You know, were uh, you know were very successful and getting more successful. Uh, the personal line side of the business was dominated by Geico and Progressive and Allstate. Um, and uh, around that time, uh, an old friend of mine, Joe Brandon, essentially knocked on our door and said, you know, I think TransRe might be for sale or might be available to be purchased. Uh, how would you like to be part of an investment group? Uh, the idea was we were going to form a group of investors that would capitalize a new company uh, that would be located offshore in Bermuda and then acquire TransRe and in that process uh, essentially move it offshore. And because we were going to be a uh, minority investor in an, well, we we're gonna be an investor in an offshore holding company, we couldn't own more than 24.9% of the company. So that was the original plan. Uh, and we were talking to some private equity firms. We were talking to other strategic investors. Uh, and then uh, one day in the middle of it all, um, I was out. I remember the time I was out for a, a morning run and uh, just sort of the light bulb went off. There's no reason why we can't do this ourselves. And so we wound up, uh, we wound up deciding to acquire uh, 100% of the company. Um, by uh, not only utilizing that 1.2 billion of excess capital that we had, but also raising some additional capital by issuing equity in the merger. And uh, the calculation that we made was that, you know, the value that we were giving up by issuing our shares uh, was, was no greater than the value we were getting buying TransRe at roughly 85% of book value. And so that's sort of how it all started. And, and so that's great. That's a, it's a really interesting to get into the weeds and, and, and deals. Like this is the thing as, as investors, until you read the proxy statement, you know, when the deals you know, already announced, you don't, you don't learn anything about that. So that's interesting. So, but, so getting into why reinsurance, 
Um, I, I get that it's a, it was kind of a diversification, but why in terms of, of like, what was that? Why was, why was getting diversifying into reinsurance like a logical step and, and, and a, a, a good strategy move for you guys? Well, it's interesting. Let's, let's rewind the clock a little bit first. So when I, when I joined Allegheny, my predecessor was, um, was a, a, a great investor in his own right um, named John Burns, John J. Burns Jr., <clears throat> and John was, uh, uh, he's no longer with us, but he was a contemporary of Warren Buffett. He, uh, his father was uh, the first general counsel of the SEC and actually wrote the Security Act. Uh, and uh, John uh, was uh, a former arbitrage analyst at Goldman Sachs before he became CEO of, of Allegheny. And, um, you know, when John uh, reached out and hired me, uh, we had a discussion as, you know, what, what would, what would your plan be if you became CEO? And uh, what I said was, uh, well, my plan would be to, you know, build a portfolio of great underwriting insurance companies, build up the asset base and use the float uh, to, uh, you know, to build uh, competency, not only as an investor in public securities, but, uh, but use it to, to uh, provide permanent capital and acquire uh, other businesses uh, that, you know, would enhance our overall returns. And uh, he said, okay, that sounds good. Go, you know, sounds like a Berkshire Hathaway. So why don't you go ahead and do it? <laughs> and uh, so that was the original plan. But of course, I had no idea how hard it is to actually do that. Um, the hardest being first getting that platform. So when we when we saw that TransRe might be available, I knew TransRe well from my former life as a securities analyst. I knew it was a great reinsurer. I knew the people. Uh, I knew Mike Sapner, who uh, who was the CEO, and um, at the time, and uh, I felt that uh, this was a chance to get a great underwriting platform at a very reasonable price because it was out of favor. And you know, trading below book value. Everybody hated reinsurers back then. Got it. That's that's really insightful. So, and was so there it, a wasn't, it wasn't a strategic addition? To, you know, it wasn't saying you know we need to buy this to have our our sister company be stronger. It was just it was purely an opportunity to buy a great company at a reasonable price. Got it. Um, and was there? A, I didn't get a chance to go back and look at the relative multiples, but was there, was there a multiple arbitrage as well? That they're trading eighty-five percent of book, you guys were at one ten or something like that. So it's just immediately accretive, or was that not part of the the, the premise? Well, it was immediately accretive to book to our book value per share. And uh, in fact, at the time we uh, we closed the acquisition in March of two thousand twelve, we had one of those rare events, which was a bargain purchase gain. Nice. Where we acquired the company at a price that was less than the uh, accounting fair value of their net assets. Got it. It was, I think it was over, I want to say around $600 million or something. Got it. Yeah, that's that's an immediate gratification of a deal. That's great. So if you you were to sit in our investment uh, meetings, you would hear us talk about M&A almost like it's like trading baseball cards. You're like this company should be bought, and this company should be bought. Let's let's sandwich these two companies together. And my sense is that large mergers, you know, especially in insurance, and especially when you have you're combining different cultures and operations yes. and different geographies, it's really complicated. So maybe like to the degree that you that's like at the tip of your tongue, like how how difficult was that 
you know, cultural merger and, you know, just putting the operations together relative to what you thought? Well, I, I think it is very difficult when you have a business model to integrate uh, the merged companies. You know, Allegheny uh, is is different from most companies in in except for you know, and I, I'll be first to say it's not an original idea, but but the idea of of being a holding company that operates really as a capital partner of its of its subsidiaries. So we don't actually run our operating businesses. So when it came to acquiring TransRe, um, it wasn't like we came in and you know fired a bunch of people afterwards. And we, we didn't we didn't uh, you know reduce the staff at all. Uh, the only thing that really changed is they had you know they had some people there that were you know were involved in uh, roles that were public company roles, and of course they were no longer a public company. So you know there was some change of responsibilities in that respect. And then the other thing that changed is we took responsibility for managing their assets, yeah. which is what we do. So, you know, we decided who their outside managers were going to be. We, uh, we started managing part of their capital base in an equity portfolio, which we do internally. And, uh, you know, we set risk parameters and uh, we changed their compensation plans. Uh, but, but that was really uh, that was really about it. I think the big surprise uh, about TransRe, uh, just speaking from my perspective, was although we knew the senior management reasonably well, we didn't really know layers below that. And as we got to know uh, the company, we were uh, extremely pleasantly surprised by how broad the talent base was, you know, one, two, three, four levels down from the, from the top. I mean, it is really a very, very strong culture at that company, uh, which, and this is something it's hard to appreciate, you know, from outside the industry. But when you're in a business where you don't really know if you're making money for 10 years, yeah. uh, if you have people that are constantly turning over, you know, you're just, you're just walking around in the dark as an underwriter. TransRe has kept everybody in their seat through a lot of adversity over you know 40 years so they have a very very strong sense of when is a risk priced properly when does it make sense to write an account when does it not make sense to write an account even when sometimes you know the market is saying uh you know everything's fine they'll be saying no you know we we really have to uh, non-renew that account it's there's the price is not uh, is not appropriate it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned 10 years, because if we fast forward to the present, you've owned TransRe for about a decade. Um, and I went back and read the conference call and looked at the slides from, um, from that call that you guys did and to get a sense of what you thought the opportunities were, were going to be. Maybe just, you know, with, with, with that much hindsight, you know, the 10 years of hindsight, I'd love to hear where would you say the com combination has been successful and where has TransRe lived up to your expectations? And maybe where has you know, whether it's due to internal issues or maybe just, you know, low interest rates and other things that are happening in the in the insurance industry, where has it maybe not as been as, as successful as you'd originally hoped for? Well, I think, first of all, overall, uh, as we stand today, roughly today, uh, we have earned uh, about a 9% internal rate of return on the purchase price. So if you just unlevered, if you just say, what did you plunk down? 
what are the cash flows year by year, and then assume a terminal value at book value. It's about a 9% return, which, which I think is, is actually quite good considering how low interest rates are in the first, in the first case. And uh, secondly, the amount of money that's compounded. I mean, we, that's 9% compounding $3.5 billion which is different from what the private equity industry does, you know, where they say, okay, we're going to make a hundred million dollar investment, but we're going to borrow it to begin with. So we don't start the clock on internal rate of return. And then, you know, two weeks before we sell the company, we then pay back the loan and we claim we got a 25% IRR. Uh, you know, that, that's uh, a totally different exercise than what we do. Um, the other thing is that 9%, I would say rep represents um, probably four or five really, really profitable years, and then four or five uh, relatively challenging years. Uh, the last four or five being the most challenging. Uh, you know, it's no secret that uh, the industry uh, experienced some very um, uh, extreme catastrophe loss activity over the last three years. Uh, and, you know, TransRe, although it performed relatively well, it had absolute, you know, absolute law, underwriting losses from those events, in particular, uh, typhoons in Japan and uh, the 2018 windstorm season in, in North America. Um, but uh, as a result of those losses, uh, the industry is capacity has started to uh, retrench and prices have gone up a lot, which is the way that you know, it, it usually works. So we're uh, quite optimistic that, you know, the next four or five years are going to be, you know, the profitable part of the, of the cycle for them. Uh, as a shareholder, you know, those typhoons in Japan and some of the recent catastrophe losses have been, have been painful for sure. Um, and of course and the pandemic, let's not yes. forget the pandemic, then, which the pandemic. Cost, cost them, uh, will cost us in total over $400 million. But, um, I think that the major negatives from a strategic point of view about the business that I say we didn't fully un, fully appreciate is uh, the incursion into the into the reinsurance industry of the capital markets, in particular uh, pension funds deciding that it's okay to write catastrophe risk for a five percent return, um, and in fact they you know they have. They have, uh, you know, the alternative capital market, as it's called, where an insurer will buy reinsurance protection, not from a reinsurer, but from a essentially from pension fund um, using, you know, some techniques to transform that into a reinsurance contract uh, that has put a lot of pressure on the returns on the industry uh, and has clearly lowered the return on equity in property cap. Now, having said that, Property cat is only about 15% of TransRe's overall business. The other factor is, you know, we went through a casualty cycle and uh, uh, the industry, uh, I think, systematically underpriced casualty risk for about five years. And we're now seeing the reaction to that. Um, over that time period, though, TransRe, I would say, did, did what they can do, which is reduce the risk intensity of their portfolio. Um, they moved business from heavy casualty toward more uh, uh, lines of, of reinsurance that have less volatility, lower margin, but lower downside as well, while they wait for the industry to, to come back. And uh, 
you know, we're again, we're seeing that in lines like uh, professional liability, umbrella, uh, DNO, you know, all those lines of insurance and by, you know, by inference reinsurance are seeing significant price increases and, and significant improvement in terms and conditions. I would certainly say, given the environment and, you know, COVID and low interest rates, a 9% re- internal rate of return on the deal is actually pretty strong compounding, given this, you know, the size of the asset base you were working with. So, but when I think of a compounder, just f- from a, whatever, a pi- like almost like a Porter's Five Forces basis, you think of something that has a moat, that has a sustainable competitive advantage. For people who don't like think of insurance as a, you know, like like a technology, like a software company where you can see what the mode is and the competitive advantage, what, what do you think the sources of competitive advantage are in insurance and and how much of it, as you talked about, comes from culture? Well, I think it's all culture. And uh, uh, you know, the insurance industry, particularly commercial insurance and reinsurance, is uh, is a commodity business. I mean, when you're running uh, one of these companies, uh, you know, you essentially on a daily basis have the decision, the market sets a price, you can either write the risk or not write the risk. You know, and, and so the way to generate above average returns is right, and this sounds really kind of silly when you say it like this, but it's to write more business when the prices are attractive and less business when they're unattractive. The problem is all the incentives in the industry work to the opposite of that. When the, you know, Wall Street in particular hates it when insurance companies shrink their top line. But sometimes that's the best thing you can do from a long-term point of view. So when I look at our two largest companies, which are TransRe and RSUI, in both cases, they have uh, extremely strong cultures. They're great places to work. I think if you talk to most of their employees, they feel uh, that they work for a company that really values them as uh, as underwriters and and or if they're in the back office, you know, whatever the function might be. Um, and uh, they keep people in their seats and people spend a long time at each company. And that also is critical because, you know, again, if you're if you're uh, if you're a company that has new players every two or three years, on the field, you know, the team doesn't really know what it's doing. So uh, I think we, we, we think hard about culture in, in all of our companies. And I think that is the main competitive advantage. Um, the other way we reinforce that is, is we try to make, uh, you know, a large portion of the employees in those companies to be owners in their businesses. So uh, in both RSUI and uh, TransRe and CAP Specialty, our smaller uh, Insurer, uh, there. Each company has a uh, a phantom stock plan where you know key employees have an equity interest in the book value of the company. So, um, with some performance triggers, generally. It's a perfect segue to my next question, and it's about compensation. So, um, I think it was I was at a Berkshire meeting a few years ago, and, and Buffett he, he always talks about. In insurance, if you compensate people solely on revenue, what you get is a lot of new policies with poor underwriting. On the other hand, if you compensate people only based on profitability, no one takes any risks and you don't get any new policies. So, you know, given that culture you're talking about, like where, how do you balance that 
um, profitability versus growth um, tension at Allegheny? And, and what have you learned about compensation over, over your tenure? Uh, well, I've learned a lot about compensation and uh, I've, I've learned it's extremely, uh, extremely complicated and uh, getting more complicated every, every day as, uh, you know, as uh, shareholders and advisors of public uh, shareholders, thinking proxy advisory firms in particular, are increasingly weighing in on what they want to see executive compensation look like. Um, I think if you get people who really uh, care about their craft, uh, they don't need a lot of incentive to grow the business if, uh, if they know that it makes sense to do it. I'll give you an example. Uh, RSUI likes to describe its business as a reactive strategy. In other words, they, uh, they will react to the market conditions that exist. Uh, because their underwriters are paid for underwriting profits, if the, underwriting, if the underwriters see a market that's setting the wrong price, they'll say, that's, that's just going to take money out of my pocket if I write that risk, even though I'll get a lot of premium. On the other hand, when they know that the market is moving toward them, which is kind of the environment we're in right now, yeah. they write a ton of business. You know, nobody tells them they have to write, they have to grow. So it, it's setting that right growth incentive um, on an operating basis uh, so that, you know, if you have the right people, they will be, you know, they have the right link to incentives to grow when it makes sense. For the corporate, uh, Staff, I think you know you raise an interesting point because uh, when I joined Allegheny, which was in 2002, uh, just just to set the stage, um, John Burns in 1999 and 2000 essentially sold every operating business that Allegheny had. Allegheny had a reinsurer; uh, it's called Underwriters Re. It was sold to Swiss Re. Uh, they had a, a growth stock manager that they sold to uh, a Dutch bank uh, that they bought for, I think, for $35 million in uh, 1995 and sold for $850 million in 2000 because we were in a bubble. And John saw that we were in a bubble and he said, at this price, my shareholders are better off if I sell it than if I uh, hang on to it. Uh, and so when I joined the company, we, we basically had 1.4 billion of equity capital. And if you looked at the parent company balance sheet, a billion of that was cash and a big position in Burlington, Northern Santa Fe, which uh, a little trivia for you, John Burns actually being a transportation analyst was uh, and an arbitrage analyst was the, uh, was really the creator of that railroad. He, um, he got the idea to have the Burlington Northern merge with the Santa Fe and, uh, and they merged. And then for many years, he was on the board of the merged companies until, uh, until Berkshire Hathaway uh, bought it and uh, took it away from the public markets. Um, so um, for many years, you know, the culture of Allegheny was, well, you know, sit around with a big pile of money and wait until, you know, the markets hit a uh, pothole. And then you'll be able to step in and buy, buy really great companies cheap. And uh, I was indoctrinated with that kind of philosophy. And um, the problem is after 2008, 
you know, as you know, we have an environment where anytime we get a dislocation, uh, the central banks all jump in and make sure that uh, everything stabilizes relatively quickly. So there hasn't really been the big dislocation since then. So we've had to pivot in terms of our acquisition strategy. And I can I can talk more about that when we get to uh, Allegheny Capital. Great. That, that's really interesting. And, and so you brought up, um, you know, the the, you know, John Burns and, and that, that philosophy of kind of just waiting and being patient and, and, you know, having a culture that, that allows for, you know, inactivity. Um, so, but I'm interested, and this is a question that we always, you know, we wonder about as, and when you're sitting on our side of the table, it's like, how, how involved is, is, is the board in all of that? And I guess it depends on the company, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you've interfaced with the board and work with the board when it comes to capital allocation and strategy creation and like how, how influential has your board been um, during your tenure? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's been very influential and to really understand it, you have to go back to the history of Allegheny. You know, Allegheny was originally formed uh, as a holding company for railroad interests of two railroad entrepreneurs, uh, the Van Swearingen brothers. And uh, in 1937, a uh, member, uh, a group, an investor group led by Alan Kirby, who was uh, an heir to the Fort, the Woolworths fortune, uh, essentially got together with uh, a guy named Robert Young and acquired what was then Allegheny in the public markets uh, for I don't know six or seven million dollars, something like that, and. Um, that began in 1937, the uh, history of the Kirby family having a controlling interest in the public stock. And in fact, when I joined the company in 2002, members of the Kirby family uh, still owned, uh, you know, 25, 35%, something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers at this point, but it was a meaningful uh, portion. So, so the culture of the company was always much like a family office that it was a, although it was a public company, it was very clear as an employee that, you know, you were managing the assets of the family. And uh, when you do that, you know, the first thing you, you have to make sure is that you don't lose a lot of money. <laughs> the second thing is, you know, you try to compound it and grow it over time. Um, so Alan Kirby's, uh, son, uh, Fred Kirby, was actually chairman of Allegheny when I joined the company. And uh, then he retired after uh, 25 years as a CEO, uh, and then a number of years as chairman. And his son, Jeff Kirby, is our current chairman. Now, what's changed, though, with the trans-remerger, just to go back to the trans-remerger, we issued a lot of stock. And that was a very you know, a very big decision for Allegheny because it was reducing the ownership control of the Kirby family um, materially. But the board and and the family thought it was a great transaction and was very supportive of, uh, of doing it. So today, instead of having 25% plus or minus uh, of the stock owned by a family, we have the, uh, we have the family of... Uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, and yep. uh, 
And they're and they're now setting a new influence through the board on what we do, which is uh, which is very different. Um, much of which I'm sure you read about, you know, in terms of uh, uh, priorities under the banner of ESG. So y- we always talk about CEOs and boards having a capital allocation north star some kind of shining light that that helps them determine between investing in the business, doing M&A, buying back stock, paying dividends. And it sounds to me like, you know, that the being part of that family was kind of the inoculation. And that's and for you, and that's, is, would you say that you had some inklings of being a value investor beforehand? Or, or was oh, that yeah. really- Well, our, our, our business model has always, always been uh, so far to have an investor as the CEO. So Robert Young, uh, the first uh, non-family CEO was uh, a guy who made a fortune shorting the stock market in 1929 uh, and was considered to be, you know, a great investor. Uh, uh, you know, Fred Kirby was uh, a great investor. John Burns was a, an arbitrage analyst with uh, Goldman Sachs uh, under Gus Levy, if you know that name. And um, and then I spent uh, you know a decade on Wall Street before I uh, came into the job, so um, I would say the board the board takes the approach on capital allocation that the CEO the CEO's job is to make that decision uh, subject to review by the board uh, and uh, constraints obviously in terms of risk. And I, I would say when I look back at, you know, my 17 years as CEO, um, it's very hard uh, to make uh, acquisitions, you know, you know, from your own investment experience. Not everything is a winner. Um, I am pleased to say, though, that we as an organization, you know, the biggest acquisitions, the two biggest, which are TransRe and RSUI, um, have both been very successful. RSUI is more like a 10, 11% IRR. And that was on 628 million initially. Um, the ones that have not worked out have been relatively small. Uh, we made an acquisition uh, in uh, 2007, I believe, of, uh, of a California workers' comp company. And uh, workers' comp is a line of insurance that is particularly exposed to economic uh, recessions. When you get recessions, you tend to see claims go up. And uh, it's also a business that's very dependent on investment income. So we acquired it in 2007 and caught about three weeks of the end of the profitable part of the cycle. And then the financial crisis hit in 2008. And we lost a lot of money on that that investment. Um, So that was, that was, I think, an example of where we didn't pay an unreasonable price, but we bought it at the wrong time. And then the other, you know, the other major uh, uh, loss that we had was uh, our venture in oil recovery, which uh, which did not work out uh, really for two reasons. One is uh, uh, the collapse of the oil market itself. Um, but secondarily, the uh, technology that underpinned the investment uh, didn't really work as uh, as hoped. Um, but having said that, you know, and I, I think our, our total experience in the energy industry is probably a net positive because we made a lot of money on public equities in energy back in uh, the middle part of the last decade. 
I thought I would mention that the first thing Jeff Bronchick told me about insurance when I came to Cove Street was avoid two things. Avoid uh, companies with Florida hurricane exposure and California workers comp. Those are like the two things that are like an in insurance. That's the best way to, to, to lose a lot of money. Uh, so well, I, think you know, I don't know if you if you're going to try to talk to uh, Fairfax, but, uh, you know, they acquired Zenith and uh, Zenith proves uh, that there's an exception to every rule. Right. I mean, Zenith has been enormously successful in California workers comp. No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so let's get to Allegheny Capital. Sure. So you, so let's let's rewind the clock a little bit. So late '90s, you sell the operating businesses, and it's you know it's basically an insurance company, um, and then you, you you know you merge with Transre. Talk about what was the goal of setting up Allegheny Capital, and you know is it similar to you know what what you know what Berkshire's created? Like what, what was the model, and and how how if at all was your strategy different? Well, we. Um... After around when we acquired Transre, we uh, we were trying to start to build something that became would become Allegheny Capital. We initially started with some small, more uh, early stage investments. You know, trying to come up with with something where we could l- leverage the knowledge that we had on different industries through the public equity work that we did, but trying to apply that to private transactions and. Um, uh the the beauty of the way everything kind of came together is because transre is is very profitable you know it has been very profitable over the years uh it's provided us with a steady stream of dividends that has enabled us to fund the acquisitions in allegheny capital without stretching the balance sheet in any way because we we sort of uh are not a big believer in running a highly leveraged uh, holding company. Um, and along the way, we began to realize that there are uh, a lot of great businesses out there run by uh, family-owned companies, typically, where uh, you know the family or the CEO is getting up in years and has their entire uh, net worth and life invested in that company. And believe it or not, does not want to just sell it for the highest dollar uh, to a private equity firm because they care about the employees. They care. They maybe they want to stay involved and in control to some degree. And so we zeroed in on a, a model which is essentially what we say to these companies is: we will be your capital partner. Um, there are certain things we have to do as a public company, you know, financial controls, internal audit ethics and compliance, things like that. But uh, we want you to continue to run the business. And knowing that you have a, you know, a $9 billion company behind you will enable you to think bigger about what you can do in your industry. So, you know, here's the thing, uh, Ben, many private companies, you know, they, they know they would like to buy out a competitor or they know they'd like to start a new product line. But to do that, you know, if you're a private company, it comes out of your own pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or you got to borrow a bunch of money, right? But there's no source of capital. Whereas they they sell to us and then they say, oh, well, wait a minute. Now we can buy, you know, we can buy the competitor across the street. You write the check, you know, um, and, uh, and, you know, I'll be diluted and we'll be a stronger company. 
And so we have uh, now eight companies in the Allegheny Capital portfolio. Uh, almost every one, except for the one we bought most recently, has made bolt-on acquisitions, strengthening their competitive position. Uh, they've made you know, major investments to improve their operations because we take a long-term approach. And um, we now have over a billion dollars invested in Allegheny Capital. And uh, it's generating somewhere in the, you know, 11, 12, 13% ROE uh, range after tax. So, uh, you know, when I look back at, uh, at my time at Allegheny, uh, and, and I don't uh, by any means take credit for this, uh, we've had some very talented people who are the ones who deserve the credit. Uh, David Van Gazel in particular, and uh, Udi Toledano, his uh, partner, have been the ones that have really built Allegheny Capital. And now we have a team of investment professionals that, that, that run that, that group. So I know you're not quite at the level of buying, you know, Lubrizol or, or BNSF quite yet, but if you, if you had to put your, you know, kind of look into your crystal ball and, and over the next few years, would you say that you would, you know, a dollar of capital, would maybe go into a big deal to build Allegheny Capital rather than maybe, you know, adding on to the insurance side? How, how would you think about that? Well, our experience uh, when we get into larger companies, and we have looked at a few, is uh, we're generally not competitive with, uh, particularly if it's a public company, with, um, you know, with uh, the buyer that is either strategic who can actually bring synergies to the transaction or uh, a large private equity firm that's going to employ a lot of financial leverage, cheap financial leverage. Uh, and of course, as you know, uh, if you're a public company and you're selling the company, the board has a duty to get the best price. So it's not like they can say, oh, we're going to sell the Allegheny just because we uh, they're nice guys. Uh, they can't do that. Um, now, I think where Berkshire's in a, uh, from where I sit, is in a unique position is some of these very large companies that he's, he's bought, you know, they were the only, only company around that could write a check that big. Um, and, uh, you know, when push came to shove, there were no other buyers. Got it. Got it. So Now, the other thing I should mention um, where we are different from, uh, you know, from Berkshire is... Uh, because of our regulatory structure, we're regulated by a number of states, but in particular the state of New York, um, we are not allowed to take the assets of our insurance companies and invest them in operating businesses. Um, or I shouldn't say we're not allowed, but if we do that capital will be disqualified. It won't count as regulatory capital. That is not true for Berkshire Hathaway. If you look at uh, national indemnity, you'll see one of their biggest assets is Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Yeah. So they have uh, credit to them. They seem to have uh, a different set of rules. In in a lot of ways, I think (laughs) they both has enjoyed that. Um, And so so the the, the title of this podcast is Compounders. And it's a funny, it's a funny concept because it's kind of something that investors put on a company. My guess is you don't have a, you know, a poster on your wall saying, I want to create a compounder. Um, but so, but I'm, I'm interested in like the idea of, of how you think about 
building shareholder wealth over a long period of time. Do you do you need to do you need to, to kind of lay it out there and be like, this is what we're doing and have like this, you know, you know, they don't maybe it maybe you don't use the word compounder, but you're but but you're kind of inoculating people in the idea of thinking long term and being long term. Or is this more of like a take a day-to-day approach where you, you set a strategy and and you kind of and, and you roll with it as opposed to just like having some you know overarching goal of what you want this to be in five or ten years? Well, uh, again, I'm going to go back to uh, to John Burns, who uh, was was uh, a remarkable uh, executive and and uh, great with a turn of phrase as well. But when I uh, when I was joining Allegheny, he uh, when it came when it came time to talk about compensation, he said, well, Weston, let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with getting rich slowly. <laughs> and that was sort of the, you know, the culture of Allegheny. You know, we don't have to make a ton of money tomorrow. We just have to not lose a ton of money tomorrow. And um, our orientation has always been, you know, if, if, if we can hit, you know, singles and doubles consistently, uh, Somebody who sticks around for a long period of time is going to do very, very well. Now, our our particular goal has been to compound book value per share at between seven and ten percent. Uh, that goal, I would tell you, has become more and more difficult as interest rates have come down. Um, you know, back when the risk-free rate was four or five percent, uh, that was a different proposition from when it's one point four four, where it is today. Um, so, uh, but we still think we can do it because in part, you know, we now have a billion dollars earning double digit returns at Allegheny Capital. Uh, and uh, we have two large companies that, that we think can grow their book value in that range. Um, and, you know, we, we link that to the compensation of, of the management team at Allegheny. So, you know, the way that we're paid, we get annual grants of performance shares which are basically restricted stock that vests uh, if and only if book value per share grows at a certain minimum rate. Um, typically we've set it for, I think right now, you know, for, uh, for me and for the executive team, if we grow at 7%, you get 100% of the shares. If we grow at 10%, you get 200% of the shares. And if we grow at, Four percent, you get fifty percent of the shares, and if it's less than four, you get nothing. Uh, and we have had years where where we get nothing. Now that's measured over a four-year period, um, and we have um, so at any time you have multiple tranches that are in process or in flight, as we say, and uh, it really does focus you on keeping that consistent seven, eight, nine percent growth. Obviously, if we could see an opportunity to do 15, we would. But the difference is, um, you know, we're not looking to go out and financially engineer ourselves to a, a 13 or 14 percent return. Um, something else I'll mention here, too, and maybe it's because I, I the situation I inherited when I joined. Um, I wouldn't wish rebuilding a company like I had to do on anybody. Uh, when I joined the company, we had we had no operating business. We had a little. We had Cap Specialty, which was then called Capital Transamerica. We had two very small industrial companies, um, and we had a pile of cash. Uh, and it's you know when you're trying to compete to acquire public companies or private companies, 
and you're not starting with any, you know, with nothing in your hand, it's a really tough thing to do. So, you know, we got lucky, frankly, with RSUI. Uh, I can tell you the story on that acquisition, which is a good one. Um, but um, so, you know, we've had along the way plenty of indications from strategic investors who say we'd like to buy XYZ company for two times book or, you know, and uh, uh, we could ring the bell on one of these. But the question we always ask ourselves is, well, A, what are we going to do with all the money? And B, how much are we have to pay in taxes? And once we go through those questions, it's a pretty high hurdle to actually sell something. That's interesting. That's a great point. You brought up, you know, the, the, your compensation structure, and I, I read, you know, I read your proxy statement every year, and I I love it. it. It's a little complicated for some people, and I could see that, you know, that some people might be turned off by, you know, having specific performance hurdles like that that are based on, you know, how the company does. I'm interested, like, has has have you seen this like kind of self selection in terms of the kind of people you can attract and hire? And maybe just in a broader com- uh, conversation, like what have you learned about retention and hiring over your almost 20 years at Allegheny? Well, I think people that uh, people in our team work at Allegheny because we offer reasonably attractive compensation. Obviously, you can make more somewhere else if you want to. But that's not why people come. They come because they get to practice their craft and we leave them alone to do it. Um, you know, the analogy I always uh, throw out there, which isn't a great one, but it's sort of like, you know, you think of like the shoemaker who really loves to make a great shoe. Um, you know, we don't tell them how to make the shoe. We don't, you know, we don't say you can't use the finest leather. Um, you know, we say your job is to make a great shoe. Now that can apply to, you know, the chief accounting officer. It can apply to Allegheny Capital. So everybody is focused on doing what they do and doing it well and uh, and having compensation that is directly linked to what you're actually doing, not what somebody in a, some other division is doing. And that goes for our operating businesses as well. Transre is paid for Transre's results. Uh, each ACC company is paid for its own results, not Allegheny's overall results. Um, so for us, you know, it, it's it's worked, I think. Um, now, I will tell you uh, that, you know, as we've gotten uh, larger, uh, you know, we're now in the Fortune 500, believe it or not. Um, we never think of ourselves as a Fortune 500 company. You know, compensation consultants are increasingly uh, communicating to us, you know, what uh, proxy advisory firms think compensation should look like. And uh, there are plenty of external parties that, you know, have their opinions as to how management should be compensated. So, you know, it's it's a constant uh, discussion and engagement to try to reconcile those opinions with what we fundamentally think makes sense for us. Um, To your point about absolute numbers, the reason why I've always liked absolute numbers set within the context of inflation and risk-free rates, is this not particularly relevant to me what the S&P 500 is doing? Um, It's relevant when we think about managing our equity portfolio, but 
you know, should we be concerned that we can't generate the same ROE that uh, Apple does? <laughs> you know, I mean, 20, 25% of the S&P 500 are these, you know, mega, mega companies now with, you know, with oligopolistic business positions and proprietary technology and, you know, incredibly powerful businesses. And, that, you know, we, we can look at that with envy, but there's not really a lot we can do to create it. Got it. So no conversation with a public company CEO would be um, complete without talking about ESG. So yes. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So so let's just set the stage. We had a one, you know, once in a lifetime ice storm in Texas. It's 105 degrees in Vancouver. Um, you know, clearly the weather in, is, has been pretty variable. And, and I grabbed a great quote from your 2020 letter that said, um, risk is endemic to our business. Our role is to price these risks properly so that markets have the right price for risk, not to eliminate them per se. So I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, you, insurance companies forever have been involved in underwriting risks of some, you know, some kind of natural disasters and typhoons and storms. Right. I'm just trying to see, is this, is this situation different from you, for you, for, for, for you and for Allegheny? Then maybe it was five years or, or ten years ago, or ten years ago. Like, how has that changed? Well, there are always uh, emerging risks, and you know, both TransRe and RSUI are are constantly, uh, you know, looking at uh, the tail, so to speak, of the risk distribution. Um, I, I think what's uh, what's challenging about the current environment is there seems to be. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, confusion between the word weather and the word climate. Uh, and let's just remind everyone what climate is. Climate is the average of weather over 30, 40, 50 years. That is the climate. Uh, you know, Southern California along the coast has a wonderful climate. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, that on any particular day it's hot or cold. Uh, it's the average of its of its experience. I think what we've seen is, um, you know, is is obviously some extreme weather events, and we we're always studying weather events as well as concentrations of exposure to try to make sure in the worst scenario that we can imagine we can survive it. Um, when you get to talking about climate risk, what we're really saying is based on uh, what's happening in, you know, in the globe from a uh, CO2 and human-induced climate change uh, point of view, what does that mean for future weather events? Not today, but 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. So all that's getting mixed up now in climate. So we have been, um, you know, we've actually seen reports from some of the uh, uh, prox not, not some of the rating firms that are now rating companies for ESG, and they criticize Allegheny, uh, and I won't name them by names, but one in particular said, well, we give Allegheny, you know, the equivalent of an F because they're exposed to hurricanes in North America. Well, you know, I read that and say, I'm not sure how that helps anybody, frankly. Um, you know, our job is not to avoid hurricane risk. Our job is to price it properly so that when somebody builds a building, they 
spend the money to make sure it can withstand an extreme weather event. Um, and if we subsidize, you know, if we subsidize poorly built buildings, then we just have, you know, we just have buildings that fall over when there's a hurricane, which unfortunately, you know, we're seeing the consequences of that right now. You know, a building which, while we don't know why it fell down, it, it clearly, uh, you know, was not uh, incented to maintain itself properly over long periods of time. Got it. And, and so in that way, you know, insurance can be a, a, a meaningful benefit to society because it allows people to, you know, understand and price risk, but it also incentivizes people to think long-term about their assets as they're constructing. Right. It's the, it's the private, it's the, it's the private markets uh, pricing mechanism for climate risk. Now there's another aspect of this, of course, which is gets into the whole aspect of, you know, what is your, uh, what is your organization's role in producing carbon dioxide? And that's a separate yeah. question. That's not something we spend a lot of time worrying about as a white collar business that sits in offices or in their homes. Um, I mean, we can certainly measure it and we probably will at some point um, since that's what uh, external parties are asking for, but it's not, uh, it's not a significant uh, part of, of the issue there. You know, we're not like a, uh, you know, uh, an oil and gas company, although we used to be. <laughs> yeah. So m moving on to a totally different subject, but one of my favorite things about Allegheny, which I would say most most Wall Street does not like, um, is a, is the use of the special dividend. And a lot of companies, you know, Wall Street people like myself, and not maybe like something, some like myself like consistency. So they like, you know, a 4% dividend yield, right? Something consistent, or they want you to buy back shares when you have excess capital. Right. Um, but Allegheny's done it differently. And, and I'd love to hear a little bit about why special dividends and, and why do you think other people are so hesitant to, to do, to, to offer special dividends when the when they have excess capital? Well, I think there's certainly a school of thought that a consistent annual dividend supports the valuation of the company. And if you're running you know, if you're running the company to get a higher stock price, um, that's the reason why companies continue to pay dividends that they're not earning. <laughs> yeah. Because they're concerned that it'll cause their stock price to collapse if they cut the dividend. Um, you know, we've never run Allegheny with an explicit goal of, of improving the stock price relative to the fundamental value of the company. I've always uh, been, you know, I've been heavily influenced by Berkshire, like, everyone else in the investment world, it, it seems. And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, as a manager of a public company, what you should be doing is, is trying to make sure your stock is efficiently and properly priced, not uh, overvalued and not materially undervalued, because that means some investors getting burned on a transaction somewhere. Um, so we focus on the fundamental value of Allegheny and book value per share is a proxy for that for us. I would say that uh, our, our return, our, our stockholder return over any long period of time is fairly tightly correlated with the growth rate and book value per share. Now, if we find ourselves in periods where we're accumulating significant excess capital, and our stock price is uh, above where we would want to buy it in size, 
um, we have two choices. We can sit on the cash, uh, well, we have three choices. We can sit on the cash, we can invest it in other public equities, or we can return it to shareholders. And uh, in a couple of instances, we, you know, we, uh, we determined that our best option was returning it to shareholders. Although we have a lot of individual and taxable shareholders who now have, you know, who have to pay a tax when that happens. Um, I, I'm being one of them. So I remember when I got the dividend, I said, wow, this is great. I'm going to go out and, you know, I'm going to go out and buy my, buy a new car. <laughs> and then I said, oh, wait a minute. I got to give half of that to the government <laughs> in my case, because I live in New York city. So, um, so, you know, we don't want to be in the, in the habit of regularly uh, declaring a lot of dividends, but I think if, if you find yourself in a position where you're accumulating as a public company, significant excess capital that's earning less than your than your cost of, of capital, you're not really doing anybody a favor by just holding on to it forever. That's totally fair. That, that makes sense. So that's kind of the balancing act we've had. And, and we have to weigh that against, you know, a constant inflow of potential acquisitions at Allegheny Capital. We never know if they're going to get to the finish line. Um, we have a stock price, which is changing, you know, for a while there, we could buy it below book value. Then it got up above book value, you know, by late last year, uh, you know, before the pandemic, we got up to 830, $840 a share. Um, you know, we didn't really want to be buying back stock at that price. Sure. It was, you know, getting close to fair value there. We thought. In, in talking about the stock price, so you've overseen a stock that, I mean, I think has unquestionably been a compounder. It was around 240 at the beginning of 2005 when you became CEO. Um, it's around 700 today. And that's despite low interest rates, a pandemic, financial crisis, just a few things that were, you know, threw some monkey wrenches into your plans. But as you look back over your tenure, what do you think the key elements of that success have been? Well, I think, uh, I think it, it's been a lot of work by a lot of a lot of people throughout Allegheny, you know, including not the least of which is the people who actually run the businesses. Um, so I think we've had, you know, we've had some tremendous performance from initially from RSUI, later from Transre. Um, we've had, I would say, pretty good equity performance over uh, the whole period. Uh, we've we've generated returns that have exceeded the uh, S&P 500 uh, by, uh, you know, in the range of three or 4% a year. So um, that's helped. Um, on the other hand, you know, a few footfalls uh, have taken away uh, returns. In particular, you know, I mentioned Pacific Comp earlier and our employers direct originally and, uh, and our oil investment, those were, you know, were negatives. Um, I think you know, when I look back at it is, you know, when we've made big acquisitions, uh, fortunately, the biggest ones have worked out well. So being willing to step up when you see something that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I actually, although I became CEO at the end of 2004, I actually marked my own record back when I joined the company because uh, because by that point, uh, John was really I mean, he was 73 uh, and he was sorry. He was basically saying, okay, your show now, good luck. Uh, I'm here to help. And uh, so RSUI was the first big acquisition and that was July of 2003. Uh, we also started a company called Darwin Professional Underwriters, which 
to date is still our highest return uh, investment. We started it uh, as a managing agent using the balance sheet of, of Capital Transamerica, uh, and then ultimately formed a company, took it public, and then ultimately sold it to Allied World. Uh, and uh, that was over 20% IRR. So, um, you know, that was a big success. RSUI has continued to compound uh, at uh, double digit rates. And TransRe, you know, overall, I think has, has been a big contributor uh, as well. So it's all those things. It, it and more is, recently now is really Allegheny Capital, which is just starting uh, to hit its stride. I, I, you know, uh, I mean, I, this is a long-winded answer, but, you know, I, I really do think uh, part of my decision to retire at the end of this year is I wanted to leave the company in a position where, you know, the year after I'm gone uh, or the two years after I'm gone, it's producing really good results. Uh, and then it'll be Joe Brandon's problem to uh, – yeah figure out what to do next. And so that's a perfect segue to my question about what sustainable elements do you think have been built into the fabric of this company that make you very comfortable, you know, stepping away and, and, you know, leaving it to Joe Brandon to, to screw it up? Well, we have, um, we have, a, in addition to Joe, who I think is really a, uh, you know, is a great reinsurance in executive and, uh, great insurance executive, and also, you know, having learned at the seat of uh, the master himself, uh, a pretty good investor as well. Um, I think Joe is is the right person to lead Allegheny uh, in the future. But beyond Joe, we have uh, three or four uh, people, uh, Kerry Jacobs, our CFO, John Shannon, our chief investment officer, David Van Gazel, are uh, head of Allegheny Capital. They're all in their early 40s. They're all very talented people. Uh, I think they've they've been at Allegheny long enough to where they really have uh, embraced the culture and the values of the company. And I think they will carry it it forward along with with the board and and obviously Joe. Um, I think. Um, you know, Allegheny Capital has really reached critical mass now where um, you mentioned earlier you're going to be talking to uh, Markel. I mean, uh, Markel got started on this well before we did, and uh, I think you know has has done an outstanding job, obviously, of leveraging their investment expertise into uh, acquiring uh, other businesses. Um, and so, I'm, I'm pleased that we now have an organization there that's that has critical mass. We have seven great companies. Some of them, I think, are worth a lot more than people can imagine if uh, if they really understood them. And, um, you know, we can now enjoy enjoy their results as they continue to grow. Uh, I, I should interject for listeners, uh, Weston referenced the master himself. Uh, Joe Brandon worked for Berkshire. And so you, you were referring to his experiences with Buffett is my guess. Yeah, he worked directly for uh, Warren Buffett for Got it. Know, years. Got, so. it. Got it. So would you say that you your legacy as you as you look back, you'd like your legacy to be about culture and people, and and maybe investment discipline. Would that would would those be the kind of top three things that that you want your you know people to remember yeah, about you? And and you know and continued uh, and continued set Allegheny up for. I mean, you know, uh, in in twenty twenty nine, Allegheny will be a uh, hundred years old, 
I mean, it's an institution with enormous history uh, and it has managed to reinvent itself over and over and over again. Um, and, uh, you know, I think leaving it in a condition where I think it's good for the next 10 or 15 years is that that's a good legacy. For sure. Um, and so I've got two, two last questions for you. Um, this is, this is one that I think I'm going to ask is, you know, just about everybody, because I do think you learn a lot about, you know, managing people and managing a business and operations and M&A. So what do you think are some, or a critical thing that you've had to rethink or change your position on over the years? And anything that comes to mind that you've kind of had to do a 180 as you've gotten more experience? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, if we look at if we look at Allegheny Capital, you know, we started by making venture investments. Uh, they didn't work very well, and you know, we kind of learned we're not particularly advantaged here. Um, it's uh, you know, it's 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 a game that requires a lot of scale and diversification, so that your you know your big winners, your your ten baggers offset your your investments that go to zero. And so we pivoted completely and we locked into a different approach, which was let's not let's buy mature companies that are are choosing to be affiliated with Allegheny for the right reason, uh, which is they love their business and uh, they need a capital transaction and they want a, uh, a capital partner that's a, a supportive partner, but a relatively light touch. Uh, so that's one example. Um you know, the investment function itself has been, uh, you know, equity management within Allegheny is, as you know, is a constantly changing game. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, uh, there was a time where we made, you know, we made huge investments in oil and gas uh, and made a lot of money from it. Uh, I think now you have to say, well, is that something you really want to do uh, in this environment? Um, and I think the answer is no. Uh, for, you know, for the ESG objective, for yeah. example. Got it. So it's constantly changing. But uh, obviously, you know, it's uh, it's critical to have a great team uh, and building that team and, and uh, making sure it's a place where, you know, other people uh, have meaningful roles and enjoy what they do. And uh, it is, you know, critical. It's not a one-person show. For sure. And so let's move to the closing question that I'm going to ask all the guests. Um, so I, I think I know the answer to this. Um, I will interject that I said I think RSUI is an absolute gem of a business, um, and 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 we love that business. But what would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of of Allegheny? Like where where do you think people need to give you more credit for where you've been successful? Uh, well, definitely RSUI. I. Uh... I think uh, it's hard to appreciate really what what a great franchise that is until you spend a lot of time in the wholesale uh, specialty market, where essentially every company in that industry and and most of the wholesalers look to RSUI as you know as the class act in the industry, and uh, uh, they have an enormously uh, great reputation and. You know they have produced phenomenal results and will continue to produce great results. Um, I think the area that 
our investors understand least at this point is, is Allegheny Capital. And I don't fault them for that because we don't really help them all that much. Um, you know, we have uh, eight different platforms now that do everything from uh, licensing uh, creative content and toys to uh, erecting uh, buildings with uh, uh, structural steel fabrication to uh, machine tools. You know, we have we have a company in our machine tool uh, group that uh, makes diamond orf orifices for water jet cutting machines. That uh, you know, if you want to find a business that's a razor blade razor handle business, that's that's one of them. And uh, and and frankly, something like IPS, which is um, which is our engineering and construction management firm, which, you know, quietly without a lot of fanfare, uh, you know, did all the heavy lifting for Pfizer and Moderna on uh, building these vaccine factories that allowed us to, uh, you know, to have a, a chance against this pandemic. So um, we have some great companies in Allegheny Capital and, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're really proud of them. And I think, I think if you, look at how they're implicitly valued in the Allegheny family. Um, I, don't, I don't think they're recognized anywhere near their, their real value. And I will point out that you guys just recently did an analyst day, you know, that was focused on Allegheny Capital to help people to understand a little yeah, more. Yeah, so we're going to try to do more and more of that uh, over time. We recognize that's important. I will say, you know, we, 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 we don't, obviously we're required to, uh, disclose some financial information if they if individual companies in Allegheny Capital get to a certain size, but um, those companies, uh, for competitive reasons and oftentimes for business reasons, you know, would prefer not to have their financials out there uh, for their largest customers to see. For, for sure, example. for sure. Well, Weston, this has been incredible. Uh, what a what a wide ranging discussion where we touched on a lot of topics in a, in a pretty short period of time. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, congratulations on it, on a really distinguished career. Um, thank you. and you know, I share, well, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but, uh, I, I uh, and, and nobody is, but, uh, I, I'm, I've really enjoyed the last, uh, almost two decades at Allegheny and, uh, it's a great company and I'm sure my successor and his team will, We'll do great things. Well, well, thanks again, and good luck with uh, you know whatever it is uh, you're going to be bothering your family with as as <laughs> when you go into retirement. Right on. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at costreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.